If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 3. This morning we're going to be looking at the fruit of repentance from Luke 3, 7 through 14. When I lived in Idaho, one of my yearly things I would start doing is in early August, I would start taking little trips up to the mountains on my day off. I'd get up about four o'clock in the morning, drive up there. The mountains were close by and and uh, hike around early in the morning and kind of scout around in anticipation of elk hunting season in September. And one year I decided to set up a tree stand in a large red fir tree that was kind of bent and overhanging this old abandoned logging road that had become a, a game trail. And, and I had trimmed some bushes and got it all ready. And so when hunting season came, I, I got there late one day and set up my tree stand and put in the little pegs to crawl up into it. And so I was way up above uh, overlooking this trail and this whole ravine. And uh, so I was ready. So the next morning I got up early and it was well before light, hiked in to where the tree stand was, climbed up in the tree, hauled up my bow and my pack and uh, set my bow up in a branch and got out my pack and got out my tea. You got to have tea when you're in a tree stand, especially when it's about 20 degrees outside. And um, so I had some tea and sat down on a little stool up there. And then I did what I usually did. I pulled out a good book. And the book that I pulled out was a little small but powerful book by Thomas Watson called The Doctrine of Repentance. And I had learned that doing doctoral research is always best in a tree while elk hunting. And um, and so I began to read that book and I began to mark it up. And as I read, I came to a section that addressed counterfeit repentance, and I marked these words with a red pen. Quote, a man has gone on long in sin. At last, God arrests him, shows him what desperate hazard he has run, and he is filled with anguish. Within a while, the tempest of conscience is blown over, and he is quiet. Then he concludes that he is a true penitent. Because he has felt some bitterness and sin. Do not be deceived. This is not repentance. Ahab and Judas had some trouble of mind. It is one thing to be a terrified sinner and another to be a repenting sinner. End quote. In our previous message from Luke's gospel, we learned about the neglected gospel of repentance, a doctrine which some believe is kind of like uh, the barnacles in the hole of a ship. They just need to be scraped off and just left out of church and left out of the preaching of the gospel. Others argue that repentance is merely a change of mind from unbelief to belief. And that if you tell somebody they need to repent, you're adding works to salvation. But if you were here two weeks ago, what did we learn from the word of God? We learned that John the Baptist came preaching repentance and called people to manifest their inward heart repentance by being baptized publicly in the Jordan River. He was basically asking them to publicly admit they had gone apostate. We learned that not only did John the Baptist preach repentance, but so did Jesus before he died during his earthly ministry. 
And that during his earthly ministry, he also sent his apostles out and they too preached repentance. And then Jesus died, was buried and rose again on the third day. But before the church was started, he's told his disciples to preach repentance. And after the church was started, Peter preached repentance. And later on in the book of Acts, Paul is seen preaching repentance, telling all men everywhere that God commands them to repent. And we learn that repentance is having a change of mind. It's not merely a change of mind from unbelief to belief. But from understanding you are in sin, that you have offended a holy God, that your life is contrary to God's word and his ways, and that you need to stop because God's wrath is going to come upon you and do an about face mentally, which causes you to live in a different light, in a different direction. That's what we learned. It's a turning away from sin, both mentally and physically. In other words, true repentance changes the way you live and think. We also learned that repentance is not adding works to salvation because God is the one who grants repentance. We read several scriptures that talk about God granting repentance. It is a work of his grace. And so repentance is not something you do to be saved. Repentance is something that indicates God is saving you. But as we looked at many texts two weeks ago, there was one text, a very good text. I think the greatest text in all the Bible on repentance that I purposely did not mention because we're going to look at it this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, look at Luke chapter three and follow along as I read verses seven through 14. Again, this is speaking of John who came preaching repentance. He is the voice crying in the wilderness. And Luke recording this about John says, so he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds are questioning him saying, then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax gatherers also came to be baptized. And they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him saying, and what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely. And be content with your wages. God is speaking to us in this text. And I hope you pay very close attention to what the word of God says here. 
Because if there was ever a doctrine, if there was ever a text that needed to be heard by our generation today, it is this text in front of us. The church has all but neglected the doctrine of repentance. You could probably go to some churches here in town and sit there a year and never even hear the word. Somebody commented to me and said, I just marveled when I drove up and I just saw repentance on the sign. I've never seen that before. Well, from this text, God is going to plainly spell out for you four characteristics of true saving repentance. The first is this. You must let go of your hypocrisy in order to truly repent. Look at verse seven. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him. You brood of vipers. Now, just stop there for a minute. These first few words are pretty amazing, aren't they? Especially in light of what follows, especially if you look and find out what Luke is really saying. The phrase he begins saying in the Greek describes a process that wasn't completed. He kept on saying this. It's not that he said one time to a specific group of extra wicked people, you brood of vipers. This was his standard address. You brood of vipers. And the phrase to the crowds who were going out to be baptized is literally to the crowds who kept on coming out to be baptized as they were kept flowing out to the Jordan River to see John. He kept on saying, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The word translated warned literally means to talk to somebody secretly or to whisper in somebody's ear to to give somebody a little reminder. Yeah, you better go get baptized. Judgment's coming. And what's very interesting. Is John obviously has a problem with their coming out to be baptized because he knows their heart still isn't right with God. It was good that they came out. It was good that they wanted to be baptized, but only as an outward profession of a changed heart. And because they didn't have that changed heart, he called them snakes. Snakes. And notice, John wasn't very seeker-sensitive, was he? He wasn't doing a very good job at meeting the felt needs of his hearers. Today, he would have been ridiculed because he didn't do a survey in Jericho and ask the people what they wanted him to preach. No, he begins by telling them the truth. The truth. They were like snakes. Slithering out of the forest that was on fire. At least they had enough sense to want to escape the wrath to come. Some theologians in recent days like E.P. Sanders have tried to say that the Jews were not concerned about getting saved and entering into God's kingdom. But that's not what we see in this text. These Jews are taking a long, hard journey to see John in the wilderness. 
This is the lowest place on earth, literally. Most of them probably traveled some 3,000 feet down, down, down into the Jordan Rift to one of the hottest places in the world to see a guy preach in the heat of the day. And love always does what is best for the other person. And in this case, what was best for these people to hear is they were a brood of vipers. The Greek word literally says offspring of snakes, which implicates not only them, but their parents. You are the children of snakes, which makes you snakes since children, snakes give birth to other snakes. Recently, someone sent me a picture of a two foot diameter drain pipe that was exposed by some water and power workers. And in that big pipe was about two thirds of the way full of rattlesnakes. The great thing about the picture is when they pulled it away, all the rattlesnakes looked out and the guy took the picture. And all their tongues are sticking out. They were there all huddled together in a big brood looking at the camera with the, their slits and their little beady eyes and their tongues sticking out. And this is how God sees those who think they can gain favor with him by their own good works. And imagine this. Imagine saying, honey, there's this prophet. He's in the wilderness by the Jordan. He's, he's preaching and he's baptizing people and he's telling them to flee from the wrath to come. I mean... We need to do this. We need to go down there and check this guy out because, you know, judgment's coming. I'm sure of it. God's spirit begins to work in all of these people. They begin to get convicted and they think, let's just do it. Let's just take a hike down there. I mean, after all, it's uh, we don't have anything else to do. Our crops are planted and. Let's go see what's happening. So you take this long journey. Maybe you hike a day or two, three days into the wilderness And there's this guy. He's kind of wild looking. He's not dressed in very nice clothing. And you're thinking to yourself as you approach from a distance to see all the crowds. Oh, oh, he's probably going to commend us. I mean, look at all we've done. We've sacrificed. We've come all this way. They're looking for an attaboy. Instead, they're met, met by a man consumed with holy zeal and with a booming voice. He looks at them and says, you wadded up massive Snakes, you vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, obviously, John had not read the classic, How to Win Friends and Influence People. (laughs) Or the more recent literary debacle, The Purpose Driven Church. John was not interested in what they felt their needs were. He was interested in what God said their needs were. They needed to come to grips with their apostate, unholy lifestyles and repent. They needed to quit trusting in their man-made religion and repent. They needed to quit thinking they could get into heaven by merely external observances without a change of heart and repent. They were very religious. They were like devils carrying around Bibles under their arms, snakes and their best skins coming to hear the prophet preach. 
And John says, you offspring of snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? What wrath is John talking about? The end times wrath of God. The wrath that he will pour out for all eternity on those who will not repent. Thomas Watson says in his work, The Godly Men's Picture, quote, Those who are not bruised penitentially shall be broken judicially. Those whose hearts would not break for sin shall break with despair. In hell, there is nothing to be seen but a heap of stones and a hammer, a heap of stones that is hard hearts and a hammer that is God's power and justice breaking them in pieces, end quote. This is the wrath of God. There will come a day when everybody who has not repented will experience the wrath of God. It is something we need to flee from. The principle you must take away from verse 7 is this. If you are going to repent and you are going to escape the wrath of God to come, you must set aside, turn away from, reject all of your religious hypocrisy. Quit trusting in your works and admit that God's wrath hangs over your head like the blade of a guillotine and repent. You must see yourself as the viper, the poisonous snake that you are and slither to humble repentance to the feet of Jesus who died on the cross to save you. And this brings us to our next point. Your repentance must bear fruit. Look at the beginning of verse eight. Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. It amazes me. It amazes me that someone could say repentance has nothing to do with how you live. What? Here, John, the prophet of God, speaking from God, says, therefore, now he has just said, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath of come because he knows that they're coming to get baptized, which was fine, but they were doing it from ungodly motives. They thought, well, if we, you know, add another ritual here, might as well extra fire insurance. I mean, a double policy. We're sacrificing. We'll do the baptism thing, whatever. We'll we'll escape that way. No. No, he has just finished telling them, listen, don't think it's just the ritual. You have to have repentance from the heart and that repentance from the heart has to drive the ritual. John gives the strongest form of a command in the Greek language, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. The word repentance has the a the in front of it in the Greek, the article the, which means it's not just any repentance. It's a specific, definite repentance. It might literally bring forth fruit in keeping with the repentance. What repentance? The, The repentance that leads to salvation. It must bear fruit. And churches are full of people who think they're going to heaven, but are not. People who are very religious, but they don't know God. And what are they trusting in? The blood of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection? No, their profession of faith is what they're trusting in. Their church attendance, their parents' faith, and a million other things. Their life is an unholy mass of sin. And their hearts run riot after whatever they want. But like the people who came to see John, 
They come to church thinking, well, if I go through the religious motions, I mean, in the end, God's going to look at my life and he's going to go, well, you did this much good and this much bad and the good weighs a little bit more. Come on in. You're a good old boy. Is that you? If so, you need to repent. That's the whole point of the passage. Paul tells us some of the fruits of the spirit in Galatians 5. He talks about believers who have the spirit. We know from Romans 8 that if anyone does not have God's spirit, he does not belong to him. So anybody who has God's spirit produces the fruit of the spirit. It's it's the byproduct of being saved. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Are these things part of your life? Do you see these things in your life? Love, sacrificing to do what is best for others. Do you see that in your life? Joy, a peaceful contentment derived not from circumstances, but from your relationship with God. Do you see that in your life? Peace, the reality that you are reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you have that? Patience, the ability to endure trials with grace. Kindness, the ability to treat others with gentleness and goodness. Having moral character, faithfulness, consistent follow-through in your commitments, gentleness, refraining from acting harshly, self-control, mastery over your passions and lusts and desires and actions. That's some of the fruit that repentance produces. True repentance results in salvation. And a transformed life. And that does not mean that you attain sinless perfection. We're still going to be sinners. But it should make a difference in how you live. People should be able to say, whoa, you are changed. And you are changing. God doesn't want you to just accumulate knowledge. You don't come to church just to accumulate knowledge, hopefully. If that's the case, then Your knowledge will just merely increase your condemnation. Watson also says in the doctrine of repentance that knowledge without repentance is but a torch to light men to hell. As you accumulate information from the word of God, if you aren't doing it by God's grace. It's just increasing your condemnation. Don't listen to those who are going to tell you that God's grace is enough to allow you to live any way you want. We learned from Titus a few weeks back that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness. That is the grace of God. The grace of God is not the word of God or salvation has appeared, instructing us to live an indulgent, sinful lifestyle. That is anti-grace. Paul in Romans 6 speaks of believers being freed from their slavery to sin, to walk in newness of life. Is that you? John in 1 John chapters 2 and 3 talk about the believer as practicing righteousness. Is that you? Peter in 1 Peter 4.10 describes believers as serving one another with their spiritual gifts. Is that you? These are fruits of true repentance. If your life unsays what your lips profess, you need to repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't get me wrong. I am not saying work real hard, try and be real good, live an upright and moral and obedient lifestyle and God will save you. 
I'm saving, saying that if you have true repentance in your heart, your life will change because you will have to give everything over to Jesus. And he then in turn, by his grace, will turn you into a new creature and your life will be different and you will slowly grow in righteousness. I mean, what does Ephesians 2.10 say right after it says we've been saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves? You are his workmanship, if you're saved, created in Christ Jesus for good works, right? That God prepared beforehand that what? You would walk in them. What does Philippians 1.6 say? He who began a good work in you will what? Perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. What does 2 Corinthians 4.16 say? We do not lose heart, for though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Whose workmanship are we? Who causes us to slowly be conformed to the image of Christ? Who transforms us? Who begins a good work in us and perfects it until the day of Christ Jesus? Us? No. God in us. And that is why if you look at your life and there's no change, there's no repentance. And if there's no repentance, there's no salvation. And that is why John comes down so hard on them in this text. There is nothing harder to do than to convince a very religious person that they need salvation. So he just hits him with the brood of vipers introduction. But when people are called to repentance, they often want to do it their own way. And John addresses that too in the last half of verse eight. Look there, it's our third point. You must not substitute true repentance for anything else. The last half of verse eight, John has just called them the offspring of snakes, commanded them to bring forth visible evidence of their True heart repentance. He is telling them that they are not repentant and therefore not saved. And that is why he calls them offspring of snakes. And he knows that they are going to say to themselves, you know what? I'm of Israel. Abraham was my father. And so I'm safe. He knows the Jews. And when you go through the Gospels, you see this over and over again. He knows they're going to appeal to their heritage. They're going to appeal to their nationality. They're going to appeal to their genealogies. They're going to remind John, well, John, you do know we are the chosen people of God. And that Abraham was our father. And he was a great man of faith, right? But before they can process that thought, before they can get a word out, before they can speak an objection, he cuts them off and says, and do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. He says, for I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children for Abraham. Leon Morris in his commentary on Luke says Jesus or Jews were apt to think that God would ultimately be kind to them because of Abraham's merits if they had none of their own, end quote. And isn't that the nature of mankind? 
First, to falsely assume you get into heaven by works. Then, when you are pressed to look at your own life, to try and get in by the merits of someone else. My dad's the pastor. You know, my dad's an elder. You don't know how much my dad gave to the church. He's really rich and he gave a lot. Now, I want you to know I'm a descendant of Charles Spurgeon. I had a Bible study one time with John MacArthur. Name dropping doesn't cut it with God. I have a very cheap painting. You know, painting print. That is the correct term. I got it at the Getty Museum. After looking at one of these million dollar pictures, I thought, you know, I think I'll buy a $12 print. And then I put it in an expensive frame. And I have it hanging up in my house. And you know what? It looks pretty good from a distance. You get up close and you realize this is nothing more than a poster. Well, John is preaching to those who had substituted true repentance for a cheap print of Abraham's faith. And so what does he do? He points to the rocks and says, see all these rocks along the banks of the Jordan here? See them? Look how many there are. Listen, if God wanted descendants of Abraham who did nothing more than these rocks you see here, he would make these rocks children of Abraham. He's looking for people who are going to obey him, follow him from the heart, out of love, with zeal and commitment. That's what God wants, a changed and transformed life. And God will accept no cheap substitutes. Not giving to the church, not faithful Bible reading, not moralism, not philanthropy. Nothing works as a substitute for true repentance. It must start in your heart when you realize that you have offended a holy God, that you are a sinner, that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life, that he paid the price, he paved the way, he did it all, and you're merely coming to him to receive his grace and his righteousness and his death on your behalf so you can be saved. And if you don't do it that way, you don't do it. You don't do it. There are no substitutes for true repentance, but our sinful hearts and our cursed flesh kind of make us like little spoiled and uh, undisciplined children. When somebody spells out repentance and makes a hard call like this inside, some of us are saying, well, what if I don't want to repent? I don't want to. I don't want to. We throw ourselves down on the floor. It's like, huh, I don't want to do things God's way in every area. I mean, I'll do things God's way that make me feel good, but I don't want to give him my whole life. Because then I would have to turn from my wicked way and my unrighteous thoughts. And John anticipates this too. and brings us to our next point. He decides that he is going to try and persuade those people to change their minds. So he basically says this. You will go to hell if you don't have the fruit of repentance in your life. Look at verse 9. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. We read a statement like that, and we go, boy, that was severe. I mean, maybe he lapsed into unloving spirit here. 
Well, it just so happens that Jesus, who was perfect, said it in Matthew seven nineteen, and we're going to get to it in Luke 13 again. And he said it in John 15, and they were quoting most likely Isaiah chapter 5. It's reality. Now, the phrase, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree, does not mean that God was already chopping, but that the axe was right there in their view, laying on the ground at the base of their soul. Razor sharp, ready to be swung by God's omnipotent fury at their unrepentant souls. That's what he's saying. Look at it. Look at the acts of God's judgment. If you don't repent now, God's going to come and he's going to pick up that axe and he's going to hew it at your soul. Now, all of this may be very clear to you. Some of you may be even a little sobered up and possibly terrified. And you'd be thinking to your life, I don't know if I have repentance. I mean, this is kind of uh, scary. You may look at your life and you may be thinking, oh, my life's kind of like the barren fig tree ready to be cursed. Well, right now in your heart, if you realize you have substituted a false, cheap print of repentance. If you realize that you have been trusting in your works or the merits of another to save you. If you are convicted, if you are despairing, if dread has come upon you, this is so good for you if it drives you to cling to jesus i know you have known about him but do you know him do you know him if not repent beg god to grant you repentance that leads to salvation. And if you're wondering what you must do, if you've done that, if you're thinking in your life, oh, Jack, I, I, I'm pretty sure I've done that. I've, I'm ready to give up all to purchase the pearl of great price, which is Jesus Christ. You're in good company. Because guess what? The people in the text before us were terrified to asking the same question. Look at verse 10 and 11, where we see the first thing. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, notice he would answer because this was his typical kind of answer, which tells us he kept saying this to the crowds as they kept coming to him. The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. The one who has food is to do likewise. Here, John is describing a generous giving person. A loving person, one who cares for others as themselves, one who is a Christian. Those who have repented are not greedy and stingy and hoarding and self-serving. They are faithful to give to church and give to others and to meet others' needs and to sacrifice their time and their resources. This is what repentance looks like. This is what you must do. Secondly, look at verses 12 and 13. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized. And they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And this is amazing because tax collectors, man, they are at the bottom of society's pile. In that day and age, 
They aren't much better today, but we voluntarily send our checks to them. Or maybe involuntarily. It's probably better. But these, God's Spirit has even drawn some tax collectors way down into the Jordan to be baptized. And they're saying, what shall we do? Which is great. Because it shows that they're convicted. It shows that God's Spirit is working in them. And now they want to put into action their repentance. And he said to them, collect no more than what you have been ordered to. The tax collectors bought a franchise. It was kind of uh, their uh, buy-in to their ability to collect taxes. And a lot of times they would pay up front the year's taxes. So you had to have a lot of money to be a tax collector. You gave Rome all of this money and then the rest of the year you would go around collecting it. Well, of course, you're going to get your monies back and while you're at it, why not get more? And so they would go around and they would collect more. And it was not that people hated them, uh, you know, just because they were collecting taxes. That was not really the problem. There was two problems. One problem is, is that some of the Jews bought into tax collecting rights and then were taking more money from their countrymen than Rome required and living these incredible, luxurious lifestyles like we see in the life of Zacchaeus, the short man up the tree. I mean, when he repented, remember what he said? I'll give everybody back, you know, 50%. And that guy had some money. I mean, we're pro- I don't know how many people he took taxes from, but probably a lot of people. And he had enough to repent unto restoring money back to those he took it from. And it's interesting when you look at tax collectors in the Gospels. They appear 12 times and they're always coupled when they're listed in lists with prostitutes and sinners. And they're almost always listed first. It was usury, greed, stealing, unjust business practice that motivated them to extort money from their fellow countrymen. And now these tax collectors are coming down and they are moved. God's spirit has convicted them. They're scared of the wrath to come. And they say, what should we do? I'll tell you what to do. Quit collecting more taxes than you need to. That'd kind of take all the motivation out of collecting taxes, wouldn't it? Notice he doesn't say quit being a tax collector. He just says be an honest one. Third example of true repentance is found at the beginning of verse 14. Look there. Some soldiers were questioning him saying, and what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force. Now, these soldiers are not, you know, like soldiers in a Roman garrison who would go out and fight battles. These were mercenary soldiers. These were more like bodyguards who were paid by the tax collectors to to protect them because so many people hated the tax collectors. You just don't walk around as a tax collector. People would take you out. So you hire some big thugs, some soldiers to be your bodyguards. And they would come along and help you get money from people by force, especially more money than Rome was really asking for. 
The word force, as it is translated in the New American Standard Bible, describes the process of scaring or intimidating or terrifying someone into giving up their money or positions. And that's exactly what they did. But that's not what the true really repentant person does. He treats those he works with fairly. And this is what you must do. Fourthly, look at the middle of verse 14. Or, he says to the soldiers, accuse anyone falsely. One of the ways the soldiers helped the tax collectors is not only would they have a big show of muscular presence, probably with weapons, but they would come up to people's house and say, give us such and such amount. And the people said, you know, I just don't have it. They'd say, hey, how would you like to be thrown in jail for conspiracy against Rome? At the next feast, you're going to be beat, uh, food for the beasts. And we're going to take your wife and we're going to take your children, make them slaves. And we're going to take everything you own and burn your house down. Okay, what do you want? You see, they would be so terrified at the threats from these men that they would do whatever they asked. The phrase falsely accused comes from a Greek word, sukofonteo, which is the word we get psychophant, psychophant from. Now, if you don't know that word, it's not a word most of us use very often, but it means a sneaky cheat and lying swindler, some informer, somebody who goes around and tattletales and snitches on people in order for gain. Demosthenes describes such a man, quote, he glides about the marketplace like a scorpion with his venomous sting already spying out whom he may surprise with misfortune and ruin and from whom he can most easily extort money by threatening him with an action dangerous in its consequences. He went on to say, it is the bane of our city that it protects and cherishes this poisonous brood and uses them as informers so that even the, the honest man must flatter and court them in order to be safe from their machinations, end quote. That's bad. False accusations are a powerful tool and these soldiers used it to manipulate people so they could get what they wanted. This is not the fruit of true repentance. This is wickedness. Truly repentant people deal honestly with others in their business. This is what you must do. Fifthly, look at the end of verse 14. John says, if you were truly repentant, then you would be content with your wages. Now notice how all these last four all fit together and are all related. The tax collectors hire soldiers to protect them and to guard the taxes they collect and to intimidate and scare people into giving. The tax collectors, true repentance, would cause him to take no more money than he was ordered to collect. The soldiers they hired to help them, if they had true repentance, it would cause them not to take anyone's money by force or by manipulating them or accusing them falsely. But what would motivate a soldier what would motivate a tax collector? What would motivate somebody like that to manipulate and force and intimidate and extort money from other people? Greed, covetousness, discontentment. True repentance causes someone to be content with their wages. And in our world, most people, even those who profess to be Christians, are not content. 
The word content means to be satisfied with whatever God has given you. Now, listen very carefully, because a lot of people don't understand contentment and they they either try not to think about it or they adopt a false meaning of it. Listen, contentment is an attitude that says, Lord, I am going to work hard. I am going to try and do a good job. I am going to try and excel. I am going to try and exceed. I am going to try and, you know, make as much money as I can to be as much of a blessing to others as I can to provide for my family in a better way, to give them a better standard of living. But listen carefully. But Lord, if you choose not to give me these things, I will not worry. I will not fret. I will not be anxious. I will not be envious. If you choose to give me less than I want or think I need, that is contentment. It is not being unmotivated, lazy, an excuse to be a sloth. It is not the refusal to have goals or desires. It is not a commitment to be mediocre. It's being satisfied with whatever God has given you right now. It has nothing to do with how rich or poor you are. It has everything to do with your attitude and your willingness to accept whatever God chooses to give you now. The question is, are you content? Are you satisfied with what God in his sovereign will has given you now? That is what contentment is all about. Do you remember what Paul said in Philippians 4, 11 and 12? Let me remind you. He says, I have learned in whatever circumstances to be content. Do you remember that? He says, I have learned to be content in poverty. I have learned to be content in great abundance. You know, I have been learned to be content in any circumstance. Is that you? Now, was Paul sitting around all lethargic like a slug saying, well, I've got to be content. I guess I better just sit here and rot in my easy chair. Is that what he was saying? Of course not. He was fighting the good fight. He was pressing on towards the goal, towards the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He was excelling still more. He was telling the people to excel still more. He was working. He was laboring. Do you remember what Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10? He contrasts godly contentment with ungodly contentment and says, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction for the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The author of Hebrews basically says the same thing. He addresses a whole bunch of different topics at the end of his book says this in Hebrews 13, five, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have now for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. 
these texts and other ones like us tell us that contentment is a calm, relaxed acceptance for whatever God has given you in your life. It doesn't mean you can't look for a better job or to try and get a better position or to try and make more money. I mean, then we couldn't do any business. I mean, that, you know, nobody goes into business to lose money. And it's very hard to just get status quo. It's not what it's talking about. But if you are bummed out, if you are complaining or stressed out or worried or anxious or fretting or stealing or extorting or manipulating or cheating in order to get what you think you need, that is discontentment. Recently, I received an email from someone asking if we would put a flyer in the bulletin and tell people from the pulpit to get behind, pulpit to get behind the grocery strike. And I thought that would be an interesting thing to use the pulpit for, but I will address it now. Be content with your wages. Now, there is nothing wrong with asking for a raise. I mean, when you have tons of employees and they all need to decide what insurance program, I mean, they could all, you know, line up all 4 million of them and file into the office one by one, or they can assign a committee and have a union to say, hey, this is what we'd like. There's nothing wrong with that. But as soon as you say, if you don't give me what I want, I'm going to hurt your business. I'm going to refuse to work for you. I'm going to stand out there and I'm going to try and scare people away. So you get hurt. So you are forced to give me what I want. People, that is carnal. That is not true repentance. That is being discontent. The moment you try and twist and obstruct or force or threaten your employer or anyone else to give you what you want, it's wrong. It's wrong. You don't have permission from God to tell those who you are under authority to, to give you what you want. You can ask, that's fine. But you cannot bypass what God's word says, which commands you to honor those who are in authority over you with all honor and do all of your work as unto the Lord. And that's what true repentance looks like. That's what you need to have in your life. I think Micah 6, 8 sums it up well. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love mercy, to walk humbly before your God, that's what God is looking for. So what have we learned this morning from God's word about repentance? One, you must let go of your religious hypocrisy in order to truly repent. Two, your repentance must bear fruit. Three, you must not substitute true repentance for anything else. Four, you must realize that if you do not truly repent, you will go to hell. And that repentance causes a person to be generous and giving, to use fair business practices, and to be content with their wages. This is what true repentance is. This is what the word of God says. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for making it clear to us what true repentance is. And Father, I know each one of us right now in our hearts realizes that there are many areas in our life that we can turn back to even though at one point we may have turned away from them there are sins that captivate us that 
tempt us, that try and lure us away from you to walk in a different direction than you have called us to walk. And Father, I just pray that if there is anyone here that is now walking away from you, whether they are Christians who have been entangled in a trespass or unbelievers who have never truly repented, that you would grant them their repentance right now that leads to salvation. That, Father, they would cry out to you, begging you, asking you with all their heart to save them from the consequences of their sin, that they would no longer trust in cheap counterfeits or their own good works or their heritage to save them. But, Father, only the person work of Jesus Christ Father, I ask that for those of us who are believers, Father, that we would continue to walk in your way, that we would be zealous for good deeds as your word commands us to do. And Father, that we would show the world that your grace changes a person from the inside out and makes them walk in newness of life. And Father, we pray all these things because we know they are your will. Amen. At this time, Pastor Willis is going to sing a song for us. And uh, as he sings, I want you to just sit there and I want you to listen to the words of the song. After he's done, if you want somebody to pray for you or with you, we have some counselors over here that are going to be able to do that. And uh, now he's going to sing. And the pleasures I have tasted That you were never in And I confess That though your love is in me It doesn't always win me When competing with my sin And I no excuses I repent no one else to blame and I return to fall in love with Jesus I bow down on my knees and I The idols I've accepted The commandments I've rejected To pursue my selfish end And I confess I need you to revive me Put selfishness behind me And take up my cross again and I repent, making no excuses. I repent, no one else to blame. And I return to fall in love with Jesus. I bow down on my knees. And I 
dismissed.